Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, the new podcast in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations that takes an expert look at international politics viewed from Berlin. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Now, today, Aaron, we're talking about geoeconomics and its relation to geopolitics, and I know you've been eagerly anticipating this particular episode. Why is that? Well, Ben, uh, we are going to talk uh, today about one of my favorite topics, um, as you said, geoeconomics or how Germany's trade model helps or hinders it in its overall grand strategy to advance its interests and defend its values or not, um, because uh, the economic model uh, often comes into discussions about how Germany is not living up to, to its ideals. Uh, now, we started off this season by talking about how we got to Germany's Seitenwende, its new era in the country's foreign policy. And we're at a point where we're going to find out whether Germany is a country that will stand with the democratic um, world and Ukraine for the values it holds uh, by supporting Ukraine, by investing more in NATO's common defense. But today we're also talking about the money. It's the economy, stupid. And the flip side of that, as one of our uh, previous guests on this show, Alice Stoldmeyer, likes to put it, it's the values, stupid. Um and in some ways, I'd say this might be a bigger test of whether Germany is actually changing its world outlook, simply because it's really, really hard to change your economic and trade model, uh, especially when you've been as ostensibly successful an exporting economy as Germany, right? And so there's so many vested interests in continuing this. And we've talked about it before, Aaron, that yes. this desperate need, including in the Chancellery, to cling to that world of yesterday, because Germany was doing rather well out of it, is manifestly there. But behind that success, there were hidden costs. And not only to Germany, these costs were very much borne by its allies as well. Yes. And one of the big discussions we had at our high-level events in Berlin and Prague on grand strategy for liberal democracies um, it concerns just how necessary it is that Germany trade changes its trade model to, as we say, more closely align the sources of our security with those of our prosperity. So this is where we're uh, talking about allies quite a bit, um, because, you know, what we've just said, this alignment, that's one way of saying let's buy and more from and trade more with our friends and less with our adversaries. Or at least let's not enrich and entrench authoritarian states who right. are actively working against our interests, as has happened in the past. And as many people would say, Germany's at risk of doing again. That's particularly clear when it comes to the energy sector. Uh, as we discussed on a previous episode, uh, before February 2022, Germany bought over half its gas from Russia. It had to spend a lot of money to axe that dependence quickly by sending up LNG terminals to import gas from other sources. Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Germany regularly insisted the now-cancelled Nord Stream 2 pipeline was purely commercial and had no geopolitical implications. But in fact, this German dependence on Russian gas almost certainly played into Russian thinking and strategic calculus, didn't it, Ben? That's right. And it's it's often said that uh, Germany failed to anticipate what was coming with Russia with the full-scale invasion uh, because they actually imagined Russia was thinking in the same way that Germans would think, that this right. didn't make economic sense, so therefore there's no chance the Russians would do it. But as you said, Aaron, it has that 
other um, aspect as well, which is that the Russians, the Kremlin, didn't think we'd stand up against it because it wouldn't make economic sense for us that way either because of that mutual dependency that there was. So this has been a shock to many concerned, but it doesn't quite yet seem that actually all the lessons of it have fully been learned, um, not least in relation to so-called Wandel durch Handel or change through trade. We talk a lot about how Wandel durch Handel or change through trade, uh, you know, this idea that trade and trading with Germany uh, would change Russia into a state that respected um, liberal democratic values. But really, it also changed us. It altered our willingness to stand up for um, our values. Right. It certainly made it easier for Germany to repeat that age-old pattern of overlooking Central and Eastern Europe, the Zwischenländer in between what it saw as itself and another great power or another empire, Russia. And when it could reassert that worldview after the end of the Cold War in this case, while still relying on America's security protection, it went back into business with Russia in a serious way. And that's an argument that's come up also in a book from 2015 um, that's a favorite of yours, isn't it, Aaron, by yeah. Stephen Sabo? Um, in this book called Germany, Russia, and the Rise of Geoeconomics, argued that Germany was becoming a more geoeconomic state rather than um, a political one. Basically, as Sabo writes, a geoeconomic approach clearly subordinates morale politique, <laughs> or the concept of Germany as a normative power, um, and lowers the value of non-economic policies in German foreign policy. That means that Germany is um, less willing to condemn authoritarians for human rights abuses, for crackdowns on political dissent or press freedom. Um, as you said, Russia noticed that and decided it might get away with, uh, with you know, more uh, in Ukraine, etc., um, because of this kind of defendants. Now, that book was written in 2015. I mean, one of the really big questions is to think that through in an imaginative way, where we do have to meet the challenge of systemic rivals, where we have to meet the challenge of authoritarian and autocratic regimes who are engaged in actively trying to reshape the map of Europe through violent means um, across the other side of the world who are trying to uh, clamp down on dem democracies. If we actually want a world that is safe for democracy in future and in which free societies can flourish, we need to get a bit more imaginative than we have been over the last 40 years in that in understanding that relationship between economics and politics at home and geoeconomics and geopolitics abroad. We have a few names for uh, some of the, this, this particular process. Uh, we're talking today about friendshoring and national security premium. Those are two things you'll hear um, come into this conversation today, but also over the course of the entire season on Berlin Side Out listeners. So pay attention to that. Uh, now, what are those? Well, friendshoring is... Uh, the how and the national security premium is the why. Uh, now, EU Commissioner Margaret Vestager first spoke of the national security premium, the NSP, uh, if you like, uh, in an interview with the German newspaper um, Handelsblatt. Basically, it comes down to the question, what price are you willing to pay for freedom, for democracy out of your own pocket? Are you willing to pay a bit more to buy gas from Norway or the US or other, so other democracies and allies of Germany versus gas from Russia? Um, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen called the process of making these kinds of switches from buying from authoritarian adversaries to your allies friendshoring. Now important, uh, we have to note here, it's a little different from reshoring, which can involve big subsidies to bring production back to your own country. Friendshoring can mean shifting to your friends, not necessarily just back to yourself. The NSP was certainly uh, about values, uh, particularly when we consider the Russian gas of the past. That said a lot about how much uh, Germany was really willing to stand up for its values, given Russia's invasions of Georgia in 2008, the Crimea annexation in 2014. Uh, you know, the, the list goes on, and yet Germany continued with its policy 
policy of Nord Stream 2 right up until 2022. Uh, but interests come into play here too. Gas, raw materials, technology, whatever it is. If you're a Western company right now, you're looking for a safer, more reliable supply chain. If you base it in friendly or allied countries as opposed to unpredictable authoritarians who may be sanctioned because they invade their neighbors, like Russia, or who use your dependence on them as political or economic leverage, as we've seen China is willing to do. This process is sometimes called de-risking, making yourself less vulnerable, at least when it comes to your critical infrastructure, resources, components. So Ben, we're not just talking about Russian energy here, are we? A huge reason why the economic dimension is so complex is that the real site in Benda would see national security premiums applied to other authoritarians as well, not just Russia, which would include China. It's about understanding where we have to pay that and where we don't, where it makes sense for us to do that, uh, what's truly in our long-term interest versus actually what would be short-termist self-harm. Farming. Crucially, we have to take people with us on whatever these decisions we make are. And for that to happen where it comes to this national security premium, to pay those higher costs because it's in our interest, they'll only come with us if they see that as being in their interests. And I think that what's crucial to that is that they understand those costs, not just as costs, but as investments in that better future and in maintaining the material edge, maintaining the prosperity that gives democracies part of their good name as well, that actually stands for what free societies that unleash creativity can deliver. With us today to help us understand this debate in Germany right now are Sander Tordois, senior economist at the Center for European Reform, and Claudia Schmucke, uh, who heads up the Center for Geopolitics, Geoeconomics, and Technology, exactly what we're getting in today with the two geos that we like to like to call it. Uh, welcome very much to you both. Are German politicians paying enough heed? Uh, is the public uh, once again ahead of the elites on some of these questions? I think the government is ahead, actually. Um, I think geoeconomics is part of what the Ampel Coalition or the three parties are talking about from the beginning. And I think this is also why we have a new national security, something that we did not have before, and why we have a China strategy. So I do believe that geoeconomic thinking has arrived in the German government and um, that the public is listening. I agree and disagree a bit on that. I think to some extent the strategic thinking in Berlin has begun. But there's a lot of work ahead of this country, I think, within the European context. Um, take the China challenge. I think there's a unique German component to that challenge. So if you think about import and export dependence, look at import dependence. Germany's dependence is similar to the other G7 major economies. Export dependence way above everybody else. And I think that's a key vulnerability politically if you assume that the U.S. will put further pressure on Europe to follow it on the de-risking train. And so that is a particular headache that I think for Germany is still difficult, in part because it also involves nudging German companies to divest to some extent from China, and that will, will hurt their profitability. It may in the long run help German GDP and workers, but there are real tough trade-offs involved. And I think that debate's begun, as Claudia said, but I think some of the more Nasty, difficult challenges are out there and they need to be addressed. 
Uh, the Bundesbank has recently urged uh, German firms to rethink investments in China. So they're getting in on this too, I would say. But one recent survey of German business indicates that over half of them or half of German companies haven't done any de-risking um, in China and that finding alternative suppliers is difficult. Uh, so Claudia, just how willing are German companies to de-risk if they indeed are? And what is the scale of that challenge I think de-risking is very difficult because if you're a large German company, where is the alternative market? I mean, you can always say go to Vietnam, go to other ASEAN countries, but the large market is China. So the only other opportunity that German companies have is the United States. So I think there is a tendency to de-risk, to look at other countries on where to invest, but China remains an important market. And I think especially for the large DAX companies, for the car companies, it's very hard to divest. But it does come at a cost, doesn't it? The profits are accrue to the companies involved and the costs accrue to society. Yes, the costs are rising. And I think companies are aware that they have to take these geoeconomic risks into consideration. That was also part of the original China strategy where they said we need mandatory stress tests of geoeconomic risks. This is no longer in the final version because we have a three-party coalition. Um, companies are aware of that. Nevertheless, we have the three car companies and our big chemical company who say to de-risk, we need to be in China. Our risky market is Europe because the growth is going down and we need to be part of China to maintain our business model. They have to compare the economic with, with the geoeconomic risk. But so far, I think they still believe when you look at the investment of the large companies that it's uh, that it still makes sense to invest in China and, and to decouple the Chinese investment um, from other from other regional investments that they do. Yeah, but that still comes with uh, potentially security risks, for example. If this, have... this is when Claudia and I roll our eyes at each other. <laughs> when yes. I talk about security, I can see you doing it. I can see what you do doing you mean? it. <laughs> no, I mean, the, I mean economically, um, I think that the argument that econ that the risky mar market is Europe is an economic one. But I yes. think that, you know, if we're looking at uh, security risks, the idea that, for example, that um, what happens if the Chinese sink a U.S. warship in the Taiwan Strait or something like that. Um, yeah, they don't know, that... only sink Germany's green transition, they sink its business model too. Absolutely. I just say there are different kind of risks that companies have to face and they have to see what kind of risk weighs heavier. So if you have economic risk, you have geoeconomic risk, you have climate risk, you have all kinds of risk. And as a company, you need to make the decision. It's still a company decision, not a government decision, where to invest. And for some companies, it's, it, when you look at all the risks that are there, it still makes sense to invest in China. I think that this is not the right way to go. But as I said before, what's the alternative to the Chinese market? And you cannot look at smaller market. You need the US, but China is there for these companies as well. And this, this challenge that you've outlined very well, I think, of aligning the sources of our prosperity with the sources of our security, when they are seeming to be in trade-off, is, is a big challenge going forward, isn't it, Sander? I think so too. And I think we need to unpack a little bit here the various arguments. So if you think about German car firms, China is a super important market, right? No doubt. I think Volkswagen revenues are around 35 or 40% come from China. But a lot of that's built in China for China, right? And so these are not German exports built in Germany or in Europe. You know, these companies work also a lot with central Eastern European supply chains. There is a 
European issue here as well, just to be clear. But still, 1% of German GDP are car exports to China. 1% of German GDP, that's really significant. A lot of that's, I think, at the high end. So it's Mercedes, it's BMW, uh, Volkswagen, again, it's producing much more in China for China. And in a way, I think that shows the sort of trap of not having been a little bit more uh, vigilant as a government, as a society on these German companies over the last decade going into the Chinese honeypot and Beijing asking as the price for admissions that German car companies enter forced marriages with Chinese partners, that they retain a lot of their earnings there and reinvest in China. Now, all of that's to some degree fair game. That country was developing. It's not the first time we see it, but it was very extreme, right? The scale was extreme. There were tens of billions of, of dollars in subsidies handed out by Beijing. And of course, there was a technology transfer. The Chinese exports of cars are exploding worldwide. And in part, that capacity was built with German know-how. How do you build a good car? In part, it's their own sort of genius of investing in electric vehicles before the West figured that out. And so it's a nuanced story, but we're now stuck with this, in a way, difficult trap. These German companies need that market at the same time if you look at electric vehicle exports from Europe, where we are doing much better than most people think, they're exploding to the US, they're doing well internationally to China, it's flat. Why is that? It's because there are lots of non-tariff barriers and very subtle ways in which European-built cars to China are not making it into the market. Now, if, if a German company builds in China for China, it's a different story. And that, I think that's a key European challenge is do we have the tools to address that? I mean, the Americans have basically just slapped huge tariffs on Chinese cars. There are no Chinese cars being sold in America. But we are importing more and more Chinese vehicles, as, is our, as are Asian countries. And so the question is, how do you address that? Um, and so that's something we can discuss. Just to, to pick up on this point you made about uh, dependency and interconnected supply chains in Europe, we were just in Prague last weekend, and the Czech Republic has almost no organic dependency on China. Almost all of its dependency comes through its connection to Germany. And this is something I don't think Germany has quite factored in yet in its calculations about how it deals with its allies, particularly with its neighbors, not forgetting that it actually does more trade with the Visegrad countries than it does with China. Um, Claudia, is that something that, that Germany needs to work on more, those relations with allies and having a coordinated approach? Absolutely. And this is what we are demanding uh, for a long time. Um, also with regard to the China strategy, we need to take our European allies into the boat. I mean, Germany was criticized for a long time during the Merkel government of doing it by itself, only thinking about business, ignoring the European partners. And this is something that needs to change. We really need to take the smaller partners, um, the, the countries that are part of our value chains, much more into consideration. Yeah, part of our value chains and also share our values. I mean, this is that and building that connection between the values chain, perhaps, is really something we could we could do more. Sander, do you have any ideas on how we might go about doing that? I think there are two challenges. I fully agree with Claudia that I think the instinct in Berlin, understandably, has been to go a bit national because the German economy has been basically flat for the last uh, four or five years since the pandemic. And so there is a bit of fright in this, in this town and in this country about deindustrializing, and I think we can all understand that. But the instinct to go national is problematic precisely for the reasons, Ben, you mentioned, that German supply chains are profoundly European, right? They're completely integrated in the European single market. And so going for an industrial strategy, lavishing out subsidies to German firms with no European strategy 
it makes no sense to me, especially because you're concerned about China and the US. So if you want to compete with the two other major economies in the world, then better leverage your strength that you're in a European single market that is given many Europeans so much prosperity. And so I think the two challenges there, on the one hand, we don't have a European industrial strategy or money. There is nothing. The commission basically loosened curbs on state aid, which are supposed to protect the level playing field within Europe, such that a Czech company can compete with the German or with the French or an Italian company. That's one. Uh, and the other challenge is that export restrictions, foreign direct investment screening, all that remains by and large national or if it's Europeanized, it's, it's a messy thing. And so if Washington or Beijing make decisions that involve the wider swath of trade tools, not just your classic tariffs, right? But really export restrictions, strategic FDI screening and all the like. It's basically a national game. And I think one key example of that was the, the Dutch deal with the US on, on semiconductors, where you saw that that sort of unfinished European toolbox creates, in my view, suboptimal outcomes for Europe as a whole. The bizarre thing, in a way, was that the Americans put pressure on, Europe, on, on the Dutch to stop exporting their trailing edge semiconductor machinery equipment. So ASML is the, the global monopolist on building the best machines to build chips. And so they had already banned the most cutting edge stuff in 2019, no longer selling it to China. And now they agreed with the US to no longer sell trailing edge machines. But this was a Dutch-American deal. Where were, where were the French? Where were the Germans? Where was Brussels? It, it was a profoundly puzzling deal. Why are the Dutch Granted, it's their company, right? But that company is also profoundly European. Its supply chain goes all the way into the rest of Europe. Right. And I mean, so they did this famous weird. billion dollar deal with Zeiss down here in Vienna, exactly. right? For yeah. the lenses for their cutting edge lithography. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Zeiss is an integral part of yeah. the value chain. And so you, you think, in my view, we don't know what the Americans offer the Dutch, to be clear, right? That's state secret. But you would think that a more optimal deal for Europe that only produces roughly 10% of the chips it needs, right? So not the machines, the chips. It produces a lot of the machines, but not the chips. You would think a more optimal deal would have been to tell the US, okay, fine, we can stop selling these, but then we want you to make a, a club of friends, including Taiwan, Korea, Japan, that we grant each other chip access even in tough times. That's our price for all of Europe. I think that would have been a more optimal deal. I just wanted to, uh, to say that the U.S. put pressure on the Dutch and on Japan, the two allies who had the decisive uh, technology in the industries, and both sort of caved in um, with very strong regulations. Um, as Sander said, the problem is um, that a large part of the tools for economic security are still for memberships. So that's export controls and investment screening. And the memberships are very hesitant to give that up. And so it's mentioned in the economic security strategy that was uh, published by the commission, which was a communication, not the final strategy. Um, and it's up for discussion among the member states, but they're very hesitant because it's their national security and it's their decision. And this is why I see um, a conflict also coming up with the Americans, also as part of the TTC, the Trade and Technology Council, because they are pushing far more um, in, into stronger export controls and investment screening. And uh, this is also why we have outbound investment screening as part um, of the security strategy or, and also as part of this China strategy. Not in the final decision, but something that we need to consider.
We've talked a lot about uh, sort of political strategies and government strategies uh, as well, but I'd actually like to back up to a point that, Sander, you made earlier, um, which kind of made my alarm bells ring a little bit because you talked about how certain companies, specifically Volkswagen, are just so dependent on China for so much of their revenue. As you say, 1% of German GDP is German car exports to China. Doesn't that seem like a systemic risk? (laughs) To some extent, maybe not not macroeconomically unless unless there's a sort of dramatic scenario where like this stops from one day to the next but i think it's systemic in certain places these cars are not built evenly across germany they're built in certain jurisdictions and so in those jurisdictions as a percentage of gdp or their local economy this is way bigger and so if it were to decline which it looks like it is already a bit because again the Chinese prefer German companies to build in China for China, not to build in Germany for China. And so over time, you may have you know, social tensions or social unrest in certain heavy car producing areas of Germany. And so I think it's a, it's a serious political problem, at least, and a political economy problem. And it could be a macroeconomic problem if, it, if it's a dramatic tension with China and they really cut out the Germans. I don't think they will do that because... My impression is they still see Europe as a market that's much more open to them than the U.S. And I think they're probably right about that because Europeans don't seem to share the American narrative of holding China back. For Europeans, I think the notion of de-risking is more genuine. It's about de-risking. Whereas for the U.S., you often think you say de-risking, which is language they, they copied from the Europeans, by the way. But really, it's also about geostrategic head-on competition with China. And so as long as Europe can play that role between the U.S. and China as being the rich consumer market that's still open to some extent for business. We're going to come to you on this in just a second, Claudia. But this is the question, is how long can Europe maintain that position while Europe is also dependent on the U.S. for its security? While Germany is dependent on the U.S. in particular and has long been free riding in the security realm, should push come to shove? And as Aaron said earlier, the Chinese sink a U.S. warship in the Taiwan Strait, or something we all hope it doesn't come to that. But then the U.S. says, right, you're out of China and you're out now. That's the kind of shock that you're talking about that could set off unrest. The other part of this, Claudia, and I'd be very interested to hear from you on this, um, our colleague uh, Guntram Wolf wrote in the summer about certain companies, and I think we can imagine Volkswagen being one of them, feeling as though they're too big to fail and having therefore this attitude that they can take this risk which is then socialized and the government will bail them out anyway which means they reap the benefits of their irresponsibility while german taxpayers and taxpayers actually in other european countries have to foot the bill classic moral hazard problem yeah so we do have the problem of too big to fail i think that we have that concept and it has become apparent that we need to translate that into other areas as well and um i think the the german government um, started thinking about this when they talk about cluster risks. They, they do that in the China strategy that they say we need to, to, to look at cluster risks. And uh, the problem is it's not defined. So we do not know what falls under it and what the consequences are. I think here we need to react really quickly because if you have a large company that's too big to fail and we do have them, then which company is that? What does it mean if they have this position? They need to have mandatory stress tests or something so you can calculate the risk better. better. So we are really waiting for the German government um, to be much more concrete on uh, how to deal with these companies. 
Right. It rather begs the question also, does Germany need these companies? Question mark if they are imposing that societal level risk. And Aaron, you, you have a question related to that, because it's not only really does Germany need these companies, it's a broader question. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, it's a question, I think, of, of Germany's entire economic model. And um, there's there's one uh, question, there's one aspect of this that I'd like to come to you, um, Claudia, on in a little bit. But first, I would ask, like to ask you, Sander, you co-authored uh, with Shaheen uh, Valley uh, a recent piece on the fact that Germany needed a new growth model, um, that its geoeconomic um, focus on exports, which is something that you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, the export dependency, uh, e- even if that made it more dependent on authoritarians, isn't even really working the same way anymore that it used to. It's not delivering the economic growth that it used to. It certainly seems as if some of the recent uh, growth numbers and projections are also bearing that out a little bit. Um, is it time to... Um, diversify or even friendshore for economic reasons as well as, you know, moral values or security ones. Yeah, no, totally. So what, what Shaheen and I were trying to lay out in the piece is the sort of the fundamental challenge to the German growth model that was so successful in the 2010s. And that was stooled on, and I'm paraphrasing here from Constanze Stelzenmüller, on cheap, cheap gas from, gas from Russia, demand from China, and, and security from the U.S. And that, at least two of the pillars are, one pillar is gone, and two are, are wobbling pretty heavily. And so you think, and you look at it, and you say, well, is this still viable as a model? And if you think about the German economy, again, I mentioned this before, it's been flat since 2019. The Dutch economy next door, super integrated, 6% bigger. U.S. economy, 5% above pre-pandemic level has regained pre-pandemic growth sort of path. Germany, no, it's flat. It's not, it's, it's just, we're not progressing, which I think is also a geopolitical issue because if you drift down the economic league table, you lose influence. And so that model was stooled on keeping wages low, on running tight budgets, keeping German products price competitive. And if you're in a world where there's more trade barriers, if you're in a world where China is increasingly competing and no longer being a client in your key sectors, chemicals, cars, machinery. Well, I mean, Chinese then, cars are now competing with German ones. Yeah, and exactly. Have domestic and so, demand there too. So what can Germany do? I think there, there are like a few areas of where you have key strengths. So if you think of R&D, Germany still does very well. There's a lot of R&D spending. Um, if you think about green tech, right, the focus of Joe Biden's heavy industrial policy, Germany is far ahead of the US. So green tech exports... Uh, electric vehicles, uh, building insulation. If you look at 200 products that, that we looked at in our research, Germany is, is exporting more as a percentage of, of its GDP than any other G7 economy, They're way above everybody else. So there are signs of hope and you just have to double down on those. And I think you just you need to do the basics, right? So Germany has been lecturing Southern Europe on reforms, on, on doing the right sort of investments. Uh, Maybe it's time to do some of that medication at home, invest in infrastructure, education, make sure there are new markets, new firms, that you have a new generation of entrepreneurs and workers to, to do the kind of uh, next level of growth and, and create the new firms that you need. And in a sense, be a little bit more reliant also on demand at home and a strong Europe to insulate you to some extent. And of course, as Claudia said, diversify to some extent your markets to democracies in Asia that you have a good bond with versus being so reliant on China. And that's, that will take time. But I think 
there is no other major advanced economy with, which has as much budgetary space to do this than Germany, but it will take courage to do it. Right. And you mentioned there bringing stuff home, bringing stuff to Europe. But let's also um, ask another aspect of this question. And I'll come to you, Claudia, um, first on this. Is it realistic to uh, source primarily from friends and allies as an alternative to China, for example? Um, and if it is, then who counts as a friend? Yeah. Who are the friends in friendshoring? Is it mostly a club of Western liberal democracies that we kind of try and keep it to? Or do we also have a role for this for India, for Indo-Pacific countries? Should they count as, as friends for the purposes of this kind of friendshoring? So no strategy with friends. We do not want friendshoring. We want a global economy. Yes, we have security concerns, but we still want global trade and a global economy. Then we look at certain sectors, and this is where security comes into place, where we say, no, these specific high-tech sectors or specific um, important sectors are so strategic for us. We do not want to have them import from China or autocratic states. So dual so, use, critical. Exactly. High-tech um, semiconductors. Right. All these sectors that we still need to define, actually, mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be too broad. Um, otherwise, we decouple. That's the, the small yard with the high fence kind exactly. of idea, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. That's our friend Jake Sullivan. Yeah, who's, who's better on economics than he is on security, we might add. <laughs> so he's our friend. Yeah. <laughs> Who is yeah. a friend? Yeah. 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 French shortest to Jake Sullivan. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's French short at Berlin Cider. So um, um, for these areas, we do, we, do, we do need our allies. But in general, we need um, um, global trade. But we need to diversify, so we look at vulnerabilities, where do we have high dependencies, and here we have all the classic free trade agreements that we need with Mercosur, with ASEAN countries, with G7 partners, but we need to be broader than that, because as you said, a friend today can be a foe tomorrow, that also happened with the United States, um, soon Europe was the foe, so we cannot only look at G7 countries, that's too narrow, have a look at countries who share our values, deal with India, deal with other partners. I think you don't want to be in a world where you define all your products as critical and because it doesn't make sense. And even if you think about the green products, right? So 4.5% of German GDP are low carbon technology exports. Some of those are not going to democracies, but that's fine, I think, because you want these countries to also make the climate transition because that's in everybody's interest. So it's a nuanced issue. Um, the Jake Sullivan uh, phrase makes sense also for Europe, also for Germany. But there are sectors where you have you know, chips come to mind most, most prominently where it makes more sense to think of a world in which you French shore or you have supply agreements with countries that you trust. And so teasing that out, as Claudia says, I think is the key. Right. Just to pick up on one thing you said there, you said the U.S. had become a foe. No, that was the other way around. Um, Donald Trump said we are the foe. So he wasn't interested in Europe anymore, but he called us a foe, especially Germany. And this is why he loved to tax all our car imports. But it was the other way around. We are still looking for the transatlantic relationship. Okay, good. Just to be to make sure there was no, <laughs> no misunderstanding there. First of all, why does the Global South go for that model that you've indicated, given they've been on the wrong end of the global order? for a long time and have not necessarily benefited in an even way from the kind of free trade that is, is mentioned. On the Global South question to you, because you mentioned we need all those free trade arrangements and so on. Um, and they haven't benefited. 
fitted from the free trade arrangements. Well, this is, uh, this is what a lot of people in the Global South are thinking. They're thinking, why do we go for that order when that order has not really served us very well? Well, when you look at the numbers, um, we try to we try to get a lot of countries into the global value chain. Um, and when you look at the numbers, and um, that's when they have more growth. That's when they raise up in development. That's when they have less poverty. I mean, there's still the question of distribution. You cannot say trade is good for everyone. So you need to to look at your society and see where the losers because they're no longer competitive. But in general. I would support the phrase that trade helps countries and not only the developed, country, uh, the developed countries, but also developing countries, LDCs, emerging market economies. I mean, that, that's how they grew. So it's important to, make, to sort of separate the babies from the bathwater and keep the good sides of that model, right, Sandra? So I would, I would make a fundamental distinction. I think some of the criticism of the Global South is broader than only trade, right? It's also about our inability over the last decade as the West to put sufficient development money on the table. We had the euro crisis, we had the global financial crisis, we were inward looking and China went in there with Belt and Road and was, the, was basically the big development donor with all its political yeah, they checks. They became a competing in the, provider of global public Exactly. Goods. I think that I'm not saying that these countries necessarily want only development money. I think Claudia is right. They want to develop. It takes a lot more, but I think that it's a broader issue than the trade one. But where I would make the fundamental distinction is between the kind of products where the US, China, and Europe are now essentially in a more difficult competing relation and where they are employing various forms of trade policy and industrial policy. And it's basically two buckets. It's green tech and it's semiconductors. Those are the two key ones. Now, are developing countries competing in those areas? I don't really think so. They're not key markets for them. And so in my ideal world, I would say on those areas, you have to stand up a bit as Europe and keep up with maybe a new Republican administration, certainly with Chinese mercantilism and don't be naive. Uh, you don't want decoupling, but you want to stand up for your interests. That's one bucket. And that doesn't necessarily hurt the lower-income countries, right? If you look at the export share of China, U.S., and Europe combined in these low-carbon technology products, it's right around 70, 80, 90% of, of world exports. So the rest isn't competing much. And the ones that are is probably like the U.K. and Australia and Canada. So, I, But then what you can do for them is to try to keep the WTO system alive, uh, in other areas as much as you can so that the emerging market and developing countries don't feel like they are catching the short end of the stick on the trade spats between the big blocks, right? And so I think that would be my sort of fundamental yeah. strategy for that. And that they get a bigger stake in making the rules to some extent, actually, rather than just, again, being on the receiving end of that. But Claudia, you, you had a point. So whenever someone says WTO, I have to come in and cheer that person. So <laughs> that's, when I, that's when I roll my eyes, it. right? <laughs> <laughs> no, because we still have the WTO. In contrast to IMF and other international organizations, we have one country, one vote, which means these organizations are particularly important for smaller countries, not for the US who can defend itself, not for China, not for Europe, but we need this for the smaller countries. And this is all why I always cheer for the WTO, even though everyone bolts their eyes, because I think it's important for the global trading system. We still trade on WTO rules, regardless of what we say, and we need the developing countries and the LDCs as being part of the system. 
Right, but I think in the in the areas that I mentioned where the competition is tough between the big boys, if you will, big girls, maybe there Europe cannot only play WTO compliant when the two superpowers have forsaken it, right? So I think you need to you need to be smart about where you want to maintain WTO compliance and where you maybe say, okay, we're not going to co color in the four corners of the WTO because nor is China, nor is the US. But then communicate that to your developing country partners and say, look, you, you don't produce semiconductors. Don't worry, it's not going to hurt you. I think that's important to be, to be open and keep that communication open. One thing that struck me that you said um, earlier, uh, Sander, reminded me of the old saying, well, you Europeans bring a lecture and the Chinese bring us a hospital, for example. I mean, this is a, this is, this is some, but a, think, a saying uh, that we are uh, regularly familiar with. It is, but, but I think so many people have realized that hospital doesn't come for free either. You know, it often comes with strings. And I think that this is something we perhaps need to talk about a little bit more. The strings that come with any, any deal you do with the Chinese, whether that's in the global um, south, certainly, whether that's whether you invest in China or whether you have Chinese investment in uh, in, in Western countries. We've certainly no, seen in Hamburg, are, for example. Yeah, they, we've certainly seen, yeah, in the port of Hamburg, for example, um, which uh, a sale which uh, Olaf Scholz allowed to go ahead, the Costco port in, in, in Hamburg. How exposed are we um, to uh, Chinese risk at the moment? So I think in terms of Chinese investment going into Europe, it tends to be a little lower than the other way around. So I think... And anyway, even if a Chinese organization, be it state-backed or not, has a stake in a European firm or European port, if a very dark scenario were to materialize, as you've laid out earlier, then it's not really a problem. The port's still in Hamburg, right? So what can they do? Not all that much. So I think but then it's, the it's not what I lie, sort of lie awake at night about. Mm -hmm. But if you think about the American approach which again was very much the ASML Dutch deal, right? Their thinking was we don't want the most advanced chips to go to China because right. you can use them also for weapons. Exactly. And so there, use, yeah. there's their dual use logic. And probably the Europeans need to do a bit more thinking about what we see as our European security interests and risks. Because in, in Washington, I think those lists and interests have been much more defined already. I don't know if Claudia wants to compliment. So I think there's some intellectual groundwork to be done and that is being done on that front. I think on the emerging market side, the story now is that basically Belt and Road financing is being cut back by China. So we have 60% of low-income countries are in debt, distress, or bankrupt. Uh, at the annual meetings, I heard a, a, a number of around 25% of middle-income countries. The bond markets have frozen up. China is pulling back. It's giving out some bailout lending to countries where it has huge interests but some other countries are completely forgotten. And so I, I look at the US and Europe, I'm like, this is your moment, right? Now you can right. step in and show that you care and that you're willing to provide financing. I, in my view, ideally via the World Bank and the IMF, because those are the multilateral institutions that have experience and that have, are at arm's length from the particular interest of Germany or the US or others, so it's more clean. Um, and I think that debate is now finally starting to heat up. The US is pushing to expand the World Bank's balance sheet. So I think there's an interesting development in that area. And as a recent paper argued, which you can find in our show notes, if the IMF were to make its terms of credit a little easier, uh, it would help that process, Sander, wouldn't it? Great paper, <laughs> yeah, which was presented you. at a recent IMF conference in Morocco. Claudia, 
Yes, um, I just want to second what Sander was saying, that um, we have much more European and German investment in China than the other way around. I think it's just a different perception in the German public because we have these high-profile cases like Hooker. I think that's when it started about the scary investment of the Chinese and the Hamburg Harbor, which was discussed very much. So I think it's uh, we believe that the danger of Chinese inve investment is much higher than it actually is. Um, just to go back to the other side, to, to uh, Belt and Road, we do have a similar um, initiative. We have Global Gateway. And I think this is something that we should really strengthen because we need investment worldwide. When you look at the numbers, there's a lack of investment. There's really a need for financing. We do have Global Gateway. And this old saying, okay, you only get a lecture from Europe, this is not true. We do build infrastructure. It is just that we are very bad at communicating it, the first point. And the second point, we are very bad at using it strategically. So I think we need to expand. We need to also expand our communication and we need to expand Global Gateway to find partners, not friends, but partners, and also in Africa. And this is why I thought that this corridor that they um, um, founded at the G20 summit from India to the Middle East and Europe, that was really exceptional because it was a good way to communicate. I'm not sure what the future looks like when you look at the Middle East now, but it was something where you say, yes, we put these points together. We do something with global gateways. We still have the transparency and sustainability issues that we want to have. And I think this is where we really need to push. And this might be even more important than free trade agreements or, or trade. Right, and that addresses the point that Sander was making before as well about that lack of development aid on the table and so on and so forth and about how we can actually provide some of those global public goods as well as the things we do like policing the global commons, keeping routes of commerce and trade open and so on. And that's, that's an important part of this as well. And it comes at a time when European countries are perhaps losing some of their inhibitions about saying, actually, if you don't play by our values, then we're not going to help you so much. I mean, the new Finnish development strategy that explicitly refuses to give development aid to countries that don't condemn Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine, for example. This is a moment, I think, where we can seize that and actually get the initiative back of saying, we have the capital, we have the values, let's put that together for our geostrategic interest. So I think there's the better political and geoeconomic synthesis to be had in what we're doing. Yeah, well, let's 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 go with uh, one to you, Claudia, because um, you've argued previously that trade uh, is no guarantee of bringing democracy to a country, for example, this whole Wandel durch Handel um, idea. Ah, the convergence uh, wager. Those are the days. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think we've seen the the. Um, I think we've seen the the end of Wandel durch Handel quite as a as a serious. Um, policy. Even Angela Merkel herself um, admitted uh, six months after she left office during her first major intervention that she never really believed in it, which was quite an admission anyway. Um, but uh, you've also argued that it achieves more than not trading with it. So what exactly have we achieved, though, by trading with Russia or China? Um, and has it made us less willing to act in crises um, caused by these particular authoritarians? Has it, made has, us it, less, has it made us less safe? And what are the gains? What, what's the cost-benefit analysis, Claudia? Well, maybe I'm the last person to believe in Wandel durch Handel. Because if you, if you think that's about regi regime change, yes, that didn't happen. But if you look at development, and this is the point that I made before, it changed countries and to the better. And what is the alternative? Not trading 
I mean, what would happen if we didn't trade, if China didn't trade? Um, we hoped that um, Russia is maybe um, a worst case because we hoped through this interconnection, the, the Russian aggression or the Russian war would never happen. And it did because security trumped any kind of economic reasoning. But I still believe that we need to have these dependencies, even though it did not work with Russia, that we need to have our own choke, choke points with these countries to have some kind of influence on them. So Wandel durch Handel to make everyone democratic, no, this didn't work. But Wandel durch Handel to, to make countries higher developed or more interactive, I think this is something that I would still believe in. But then they also end up having influence over us, as we, as we also saw in the Russian example. Um, the, I think that there was a lot of um, calculus on the Russian end about whether we would even do anything because we were so dependent on on, on Russian gas, buying over half of uh, of it from Russia at the time. Um, that I mean, ultimately, I, I think that um, obviously Putin called that wrong. But I mean, we can also speculate about the degree to which it even influenced his decision to invade Ukraine in the first place. Is that you know Germany would not act. Yeah, I mean, he, he got it horribly wrong, right? So the Germans and the Europeans, together with their partners, were much more courageous and principled than he probably ever thought. But he certainly didn't think so. You can see that just from the fact of where the Russian central bank put its reserves, right? They, they, made, they tried to make them U.S. sanctions proof, and they put quite a lot of it in Europe, hoping that the Europeans would be a little less tough on them. That also, we so that also right? backfired. But from the happy look on your face, I can tell our listeners it did not. <laughs> it did work. not. It did not. No, it, did, it didn't work. It didn't work. In fact, it was very quickly frozen. So it, it like really horribly didn't work, right? But still, you guys here are the foreign policy wonks, but clearly these things matter in terms of um, big strategic decisions, whether or not to initiate a war. What you think the reaction will be. What you would think the reaction will be, even if you uh, if you miscalculate. I do think Claudia has a point on you don't want to not trade. I, I think that's f fully fair. And I also really think you want to make sure, again, that many sort of unaligned countries don't feel shut out from the European market. And I think there's even a case to stay open to China uh, on a trade level. But you do have to Think about some goods like the KUKA case, which are advanced German engineered robots. I mean, is that the kind of stuff you want to give away, the sort of intellectual property? I would be more critical of that. And so you have to get granular, you have to get sectoral, you have to be smart about where you draw lines and where you don't. But if we think about France's biggest company, LVMH, do we care that they sell beautiful handbags in China? No, that's not, in my view, that can never be a strategic risk. And so I think making these kind of calls will be very important going forward. Targeted strategy. Targeted, yeah, and it's interesting. Yeah. Having that nuanced approach, I think, is necessary because you're, you're right, Claudia. I mean, you put your finger on the fact that the Russia case obscures most others. The China case obscures most others here. With other countries, there might be a different rationale in play. But we have to use the leverage we have. If there is going to be vandal, do handle, change through trade, there has to be pressure for change as well as trade going on. Otherwise, the lever, the lever doesn't work. It, I think what we've lost is our illusion of that this is an automatic process and that sort of lazy vision of the end of history, the lazy convergence wager, if you like. But just to put this on the point at the end, because a, a lot of our listeners are in, in Europe and a lot of our listeners are in Central Eastern Europe and are very concerned about what's going on in Ukraine, but also what's happening with Germany's relation to the region. And so given that there was the case with Russia, which did go spectacularly wrong, um, 
Why should Germany's partners around Europe, but particularly in Central Eastern Europe, cheer for its economic success in future? Because they're dependent on German companies. They're part of the value chain. So if Germany doesn't grow and if our companies lose out, I mean, that's where they're immediately affected with their own with their own intermediate companies and with their own jobs. So they, they need to be concerned or cheer uh, out of self-interest. It's a super important one. So I would think that a lot of Eastern European countries are profoundly integrated into the German economy. They've benefited, at least some of their regions have benefited tremendously from moving up the value chain in industrial goods. And then Germany is the tip of the spear producing the most advanced stuff. That's clearly been proven by data. Whether politicians feel it that way, you, the two of you will know better. But uh, if you look at Poland, it's one of the fastest growing economies in the world over the last few decades. It's, an, it's a stellar economic performance. Maybe not all Poles benefited, but on a macro level, it's, it's just absolutely impressive. So that has to do with integration with Germany. And so it matters. Let me give you one example. And then the criticism I would have of Germany Again, talking about our research on low-carbon technology products, if you look at metrics of relative comparative advantage, all of Eastern Europe, or like most of Eastern Europe and Germany are dark green. They are extremely competitive in these products of the future. That shows you one thing. This is one value chain. These are Hungary, Poland, Czech, Czechia. All these countries are, are building into the German supply chain and vice versa. And so for me that Berlin goes for a national industrial strategy, lavishing subsidies only on its own firms, makes also no economic sense. And it doesn't make political sense because some firms in Eastern Europe might say, well, hey, wait a minute, are we being left out? We're part of the same business chain here. We work with the German company all the time. They may have a bit more demand, but if they're direct competitors, they may lose out. And so I think thinking that more European is a key, key priority for Germany. I think this is key. Claudio, if I were to respond to what you said, that going from cheering for Germany because they have to, to cheering for Germany because they want to, should be the emphasis of German policy here. And that means a little bit more team play. It means exactly not uh, Germany first, Germany only industrial subsidies. It means sharing the value chain a little bit more fairly. This is a very common complaint in the Czech Republic that you see that even though they have moved up the value chain, and North Bohemia would be a prime example, uh, the Volkswagen ownership of Škoda there and so on, then the value is not shared. And that's felt very much so. And we see an interesting example recently in the defense industry with uh, KMV, um, the maker of the Leopard 2 tank, has agreed to share some more of the value of this new tank deal with the Czech Republic and with Lithuania and have a production line there so that there's actually value the Czech government can sell to their people. Same with the Italians. To me, that provides an interesting potential way of looking forward. Would that be something, Claudia, you think the German government should explore more in yes. pushing firms to do? Absolutely. Think more European, absolutely. So there you go. You see, we can agree. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> so thank you very much indeed to Claudia Schmucker and Sander Tordois for joining us today. We heard a lot of pros, a lot of cons, and a lot of work for Germany to do with its allies and against its adversaries to make a more prosperous as well as a more secure future. And that's all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Uh, you can find uh, our guests as well as some of their recent uh, publications, some of which we've directly referenced on this episode in our show notes. Please join us next episode for our discussions about grand strategy and neo-idealism, our report back uh, from our workshops in Prague. Until then, 
Auf Wiedersehen und tschüss. Naschkladano.